verses 8 through 10. We're going to read verse 8 to start with. For it is grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. The key to this verse right here that I want us to really look at is that line, it's not from yourselves. It's easy when it comes to salvation for us to get a little bit of an attitude that we're saved. What we have to realize is we didn't save ourselves. We did absolutely nothing to deserve salvation. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We didn't do good works. We are saved by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. Now, the grace that Paul was referring to in Ephesians 2 and 8 is God's favor that he shows without regard on the recipient. In other words, it doesn't matter who the person is that comes to, to God. If they come to God with a repentant heart, God will forgive their sins. If they ask for God to, to fill them with his spirit, he will fill them with his spirit. He is not a respecter of persons. And that's the grace that Paul was speaking about here. And, and this is the good part. God bestows this kindness regardless what the person deserves. See, that's where grace comes in. It's not based on a person comes, and you don't have to come down front, but say a person comes to the front and, and they ask for forgiveness and ask God to fill them with His Spirit. It's not based on the fact that God looks at them and says, yeah, but you deserve it and you don't. The, the, the good part is nobody deserves it. But the better part is everybody is eligible. God's grace is one of His key attributes. If we go back to Exodus chapter 34 and 6, it says that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Those are some of the attributes of God. He is a compassionate and gracious God. He is full of grace. If He wasn't, the children of Israel would not be around today. God's plan of redemption for them at the time was to call them out of Egypt and give them a land that was promised to them. In fact, it was the land we talked about a few weeks ago that they left because of a famine. When you had this family living in, in Canaan and there was a famine in the land and God had sent Joseph down to Egypt to to secure their well-being. And over a period of time, Joseph sent back, had his family brought to Egypt. And it said that, that they found favor as long as Joseph was alive. But then at some point, Joseph died, and a different Pharaoh came in, and different people took over. And the people of Israel, the Israelites that were living in Egypt, didn't find favor anymore. And at that point, God looked at His people and said, I'm going to give you back the land that was yours before. And that trip that Joseph's brothers had made back and forth, remember, with the, to go get food, and they ended up with silver in their bags, and they went back and they ended up with a cup in their bags, and all of that stuff, that little trip they made back and forth, it took them 40 years to get back. 40 years. Because they would live for God, quit living for God, quit living, live for God. But by the grace of God, they inherited that land that God had promised. Why? Because God is compassionate and gracious and He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He did it in spite of their unrighteousness. Our salvation today that you receive, you receive it not by how good you are, but in spite of what you are and who you are. Someone once said that when you speak about grace, if someone doesn't question and say that you're making it sound way too easy, then you're not speaking of grace correctly. Because it really is just that simple. John 1 and 14. 
The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was grace incarnate. He was a manifestation of grace on earth. Let's look at Titus 2 and 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That means it's not to the Jew. It's not to the Greek, as Paul said. It's to everyone. And it says for the, in, back in Ephesians 2 and 8, it says, For it is grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. And what that faith is, is when we come to a point to say, I'm depending entirely on Christ to deliver me from the wrath of God that I deserve. When we can have that faith, then I believe God, at that point, can save us. But up until that point, if we think that there's something that we can do, we might receive a an accolade from someone that says you're a good person by going out and trying to live a good life. But only when we recognize that through the death of Jesus Christ and His blood that we are saved... Only when we realize that can we receive true salvation. It's not something we did. Now, Paul went on in verse number 9. And just in case somebody was wondering and thinking, well, I think I did it on my own. He said that it's not by works so that no one can boast. See, if there was a way that we could get saved without the grace of God then it would be a chance that someone would go around and say, I got myself saved. I saved myself. Or they get to heaven and say, I got to heaven because I did this, this, and this, and I'm such a good person, and I accomplished all of this, and because of that, that's why I'm in heaven. Or walk around on earth and boast about their salvation. You know what? We should give thanks because of salvation, but we certainly have no reason to boast Because it's not anything we did. It was a free gift that was given to us. If somebody gives you something, it's kind of hard to boast that you've got it. You didn't really do anything to get it. It was a gift. They could have given it to somebody else. Salvation is the same thing. It's offered to everyone and it's free. How can you boast about something that's free? It'd be like walking around saying, Hey, I'll tell you what. Back at my house, we have hundreds of gallons of water. Okay. So does everybody else. So you've got something that anybody else can have. Why would you boast about it? It would just be silly. For us to boast that we have salvation is just as silly because it's free to everybody. Now, water's not free. Let me clarify that. That's true. Verse number 9. That's true. Verse number 10, I'm sorry. For we are in God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We cannot boast in our salvation because we didn't do anything to earn it. But while we can't boast about our good works, salvation should bring about good works. If we are saved, we will go out and do good works. Brother Ashley just mentioned something to me as I was coming in. We're talking just briefly about the lesson. And he said, I saw this interesting question in the Sunday school lesson. It said, what is the relationship between salvation and good works? It's not that good works gives us salvation. It's that salvation will cause us to do good works. <clears throat> and believe it or not, there's a lot of people get that backwards. 
There's a lot of people in churches this morning that have that all twisted around. That it's about what you go out and do that you make where do you deserve salvation. God has saved us for a reason. He has saved us so that we can accomplish His good plan. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's His plan. We are saved to go out and do the plan, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So that means there is something for us to do once we're saved. We are not saved to find a place on a pew and wear a pattern of our rear end there. That's a little different way of saying it. For anyone that happened to listen online or on CD, I meant anyway. Whatever we have in Christ is because of Christ. God did not save us so we could walk around saying, I'm saved and you're not. God did not save us so that we could walk around looking down our nose at people that maybe we feel like are not saved, like the Pharisees, stand around saying, I sure am, I thank God that I'm not like that guy. That's our praise. I praise God. I praise God. Well, that's good. What do you praise God for? I praise God that I'm not like you. That's what they did. We're talking about prejudice. And usually when we think about prejudice, we think about Israeli versus Palestinian, uh, Hamas versus Israel, and all the stuff we see, Shiite versus whatever the other group is there. And we think about how much they hate each other and they're prejudiced against each other. Black versus white. And we look at all that and we think of prejudice. But when we think of prejudice, a lot of times we don't really think about prejudice of, I'm a whole lot more saved than you are. Or my salvation is better than your salvation. There is one plan of salvation. That's why mine can't be better than yours. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. See, it makes it simple. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separated you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood, through the blood of Christ. Paul told them there was two ways in which the gen- the Gentile readers and the people he was talking to had been alienated. One of them was social. There was this ill will that had been between the Jews and the non-Jews for centuries. Jews considered the Gentiles to be outcast and objects of contempt and dishonor. And, and a lot of times it was the other way around. The Egyptians looked at the Jews... When Joseph was in Egypt and he was second in command to only the Pharaoh, he didn't even eat with his brothers because the Egyptians wouldn't eat with those people because they found it disgusting. There's prejudice the other way. In fact, the Jews called the Gentiles uncircumcised even though that whole rite was something that was done in the flesh, and it had nothing to do with the Spirit. It had nothing to do with what was on the inside of somebody's heart. 
And so you have to remember that this didn't just go on back way before the church was formed. This was going on in the church. There were Jews and Gentiles in the church and they were kind of fighting it out amongst themselves on who was more spiritual than who. And Paul was trying to clarify, way back then, you didn't have any of the promises. The second form of alienation was spiritual. At one time, the Gentiles were living completely apart from any of the promises of God. Back in the Old Testament... The, the Gentiles had none of those promises. There was God's chosen people, and everybody else was not God's chosen people. God blessed His people. Anywhere they went, as long as they were with God, God helped them defeat their enemies. Anybody that wasn't a Jew was their enemy. <clears throat> they defeated them all as long as they were following God. They were excluded from the blessings And therefore, they didn't know about the promises that God had made, the covenant that God had made with His people, because they weren't His people. The Gentiles had lots of idols, but they didn't know the one true God. But now, they've come to a point to where all of that law stuff and that old covenant has passed away. And they're under this covenant of Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to explain to them that this covenant of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, is for everyone. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. Those of y'all that were an outcast and way out there, outsiders, you have brought, been brought near through the blood Jesus broke down the walls in between. Let's go to verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. As we said a while ago, He's telling them again, the law is gone. There's something new. The purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Come on on. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Get this. And peace, those who were near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. He preached this message right there or in his letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. He's telling them, at one time, all you Gentiles were far away and through the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. And those that were near, the law is gone, but they've been brought under that same blood of Jesus Christ. Now, for fear that someone will leave here today and say, Well, Brother David got up there today, and he said that you can just do whatever you want, and we're all one big happy family. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. I still believe that there's a plan of salvation. But I don't believe that because there's one true plan of salvation, that it gives us the right to look down on somebody and be prejudiced against them because they don't know what we know. Jesus' work of reconciliation is referred to in, in verse 14 as dividing the wall of hostility. This was probably, let's look at something on a map here. 
probably an allusion to the partitions that were in the, the temple in Jerusalem at the time. As you see, on the left-hand side of the screen, it says Gentiles court. That yellow part right there is a wall. You know what that did? It separated the Gentiles from going in to the temple. They could go up that far. They could go into the courtyard and do whatever they did. If they wanted to go up and worship God, that was fine. You can go up here and worship God all you want. But you know what? You can't go inside. And I believe that Paul was alluding in verse 14 to this very thing when he says, it's broken down the walls. Because the non-Jews could only go to the court, but they could not actually go into the sanctuary to worship God. And I believe Paul was saying, now at this point, that wall, because they all knew what he was talking about, he was saying, this wall right here, it's broken. It's gone. And now everybody can come into the presence of God just like anybody else. Stay with me. God had given the law originally to Moses. Remember the whole Ten Commandments thing and and all of that. And Moses was the leader of the Israelites. And because they had received the law, most of them felt very superior to anyone else who was not an Israelite. And i got to tell you this. There's a lot of people in the world today that because they've received something that others have not received, they are just as prejudiced and it's just as wrong. And I'm not making judgments on people and saying that, well, it's okay, whatever they believe, that's okay. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if we have the attitude that we look down our noses at someone who has not received a real experience with Jesus Christ, how can we possibly win them to Christ with that kind of an attitude. And Jesus did not come to throw the law out the window. He came to fulfill the law. All the law was was a series of, of sacrifices and, and rules and regulations. And Jesus took that and He fulfilled it because He was the ultimate sacrifice. And He lived His life on earth as an example to us how to be Christ-like. Not through a series of rules and regulations. You don't see Jesus standing up and teaching and saying, okay, now, everybody here, you can't go... Number one, everybody, look, listen to me, you can't go to the movies. Number two, you can't wear open-toed shoes. Gentlemen, they don't want to see any short sleeve shirts. You never see where Jesus did that kind of stuff. Instead, He told stories and, and gave them examples of things like the Samaritan and how He was a good person. And He gave them examples of how they should live their life. And He gave the ultimate example of giving His own life for all of those people. And I know ultimately the reasoning for Paul saying all this was so that, that that hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles would just go away. Ultimately, that would have been the goal. And maybe in the church at Ephesus and to the other surrounding churches where this letter was circulated, maybe that happened. 
Sadly, we can see by news events of recent times that that hasn't happened worldwide. But you know what? We can also say that there's probably not very many of those people that are filled with the Spirit. Paul was talking to the church when he wrote the letter. Another thing, the reconciliation that Paul spoke about was not for a group of people. He never said that Jesus did all of these things to save the Gentiles as a people or the Jews as a people or a race. It was for us individually. You see, we can't be saved as a group. There's no such thing as group salvation. It's individual. Because you go to a church that teaches the Bible, doesn't make you saved. If you went to a church that everything that was ever said in that place, every word ever spoken, was straight from the mouth of God, it still wouldn't save you. Salvation is an individual experience that you have to do on your own. That's exactly right. The sign on the the, the name on the sign outside the church is not what saves you. Salvation is an individual experience with you and God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Before we go there, I want to read a, I want to read a story. <clears throat> Everyone's heard of John Wesley, right? John Wesley once dreamed that he was at the gates of hell. He knocked and asked, are there any Roman Catholics here? Yes, many, was the reply. Any Church of England men? Yes, many. Any Presbyterians? Yes, many. Any Wesleyans? Yes, many. Disappointed and dismayed, especially at the last reply, he turned his steps upward and found himself at the gates of paradise. Here he repeated the same questions and ended with any Wesleyans here, and the answer was no. Whom have you then here, he asked. We do not know of any here which you have named. The only name of which we know anything here is Christian. And I know the name Christian has been used very loosely, but in its real term of Christ-like, that's where this story comes from and that's what this dream was about. You see, I believe there's going to be all kinds of people in hell. We, we think about all the people in hell. We think about the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Ted Bundys and, and all these people that we just know that are going to hell. But let me tell you this. They're going to be in the company of a lot of Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, and everybody else up and down the street going to be a bunch of them that called themselves something. And surprisingly enough, to some people, when they get to heaven, they're going to find that there's some Baptist people there too and some Catholic people there. That's going to be a big shock. It's the truth. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We'll go back to the Word, and that way you can't argue with me. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to be a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul gives the analogy of this house to, to show unity that the believers should enjoy. The church is a foundation that is built on the New Testament, apostles, the prophets, and through their witnessing and their teaching, many have come to faith. But he doesn't leave it at that. He says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But he says with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Back in that day, architects would take, when they were building a building, they would take a large stone at the corner of a building. They would line it up and make sure that it was exactly the way it should be. And the rest of the building was lined up by that cornerstone. That way when the building was complete, it was correct because it was based on the cornerstone. What we have today in this Word of God is based as Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. If we line up according to this right here, you won't have any problems. Well, you might not have. You won't have any problems with salvation. Doesn't mean you won't have any problems. Paul described the church as a temple. He probably was referring to Herod's temple that we just saw an outline of, or maybe even to the, the temple of Artemis or Diana that was in Ephesus at the time, because people were familiar with the temple. And he noted that God has joined the believers together as the, the things that built the temple. Back then, you didn't have off-site building where they would craft these big blocks and they would be laser cut and then they would take them over and set them with a crane, Tony, where, and they all just fit together. It didn't work that way. They would take them up there and they would have to move them around and they'd have to chip a little bit off here and a little bit off here and they'd have to shift them around until they all fit together. And that's what Paul was talking about. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. We are joined together through the Spirit of God. In 1959, a Caucasian man named John Howard Griffin changed his appearance to make himself look as though he were an African-American. Feeling that he could never glimpse the plight of blacks unless he experienced life from a different vantage point, he altered the pigment of his skin with oral medication, sun lamp treatments, and various kinds of stain. He then set out on travels throughout the South. The results he found were unbelievable. He reported receiving treatment that was almost inhuman. There were vehicles in which he was not allowed to ride. There were restaurants in which he could not eat. There were hotels that would not give him a room for the night. And there were restrooms he was not permitted to use. He was persecuted, slighted, and cheated. Griffin wrote about his treatment in his book, Black Like Me. You see, it's sometimes, it's not until we feel the sting of injustice and equality that we take notice that there's anything like prejudice around. Mm -hmm. Until we experience prejudice, it's hard for us to understand what it's really like. God has called us, He has called the church to be free from whatever type of prejudices there are. If there's things you're holding on to in your heart and you're saying, God saved me and I'm on my way to heaven, and yet in your heart you still have prejudice towards a certain type of person, you need to get rid of it. You don't have to like what that person does. But you can't hate that person in your heart.
What if that person showed up next Sunday and sat next to you in church? What would you do? As I prayed about this lesson, it seemed that God kind of took me <clears throat> in a little bit different direction. And I want to, I want to go to 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 3. And I will do my best to end on time, Pastor. The Lord said to Samuel, how, this is God talking to Samuel. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So he does just that. He takes off from where he is. He goes to where Jesse lives. He tells Jesse that I want you to round up the boys and bring them in because God's going to tell me which one it is and I'm going to anoint him as a new king. And we're going to have this big feast. Y'all come over for dinner. Bring mom and kids over. Um, verse number five. <clears throat> Samuel replied, some people had asked him, are you coming here in peace? Because we're, we're kind of scared of you showing up here because they knew that people died kind of when Samuel showed up. But he said, yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Six and seven. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Samuel looked and said, this is a tall guy. He looks like a king. I like that. King should be tall. Good king. Yep, that's, that's the guy. And God said, don't look at his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But, but God, this guy, he just looks like a king. Remember Saul? God, you remember Saul, don't you? He was a big guy. He was really intimidating. And, and that's a good thing when you're king because when you walk through the crowd, everybody kind of has to look up to you. And, and I think this guy would work just fine. And God said, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Let's go to verse 8 through 10. Then Jesse called Abinadab and, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, eh, the Lord hadn't chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor, nor has the Lord chose, chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Okay, Jesse, what's going on here? God told me to come down here and pick one of your sons. But every time I think it's this one, God tells me, no, it's not him. What's going on? Verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? See, that's what he said. Just my version was a little different. Are these all the sons you have? Well, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. No dinner for any of you until he gets here. Oh, man. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went on to Ramah. <clears throat> you see, God doesn't look at people like we do. Samuel went through all of these other brothers thinking that each one, well, if that one won't do, then this one will. Okay, that, not that one. Okay, then that one, then this one. 
he would have taken the first one. Because he looked at the outside appearance only. <clears throat> family comes into a church and, and the people go, boy, we'd, we'd love to have that family here. They, they really look like they're successful. Their kids are so well behaved. Boy, we'd sure like to have them here. Well, what about the stinky family with the little rugrats? Do we say the same thing? Well, God, what about that family that looked like they were really successful and, and the kids were so well behaved, couldn't you just send them back? And I believe God says the same thing to us that He said to Samuel. That's not the one. And that doesn't mean we won't have any of those families show up at High Point Church. I'm not saying that. But I think too fast, we are quick to judge which ones the, that God wants by what we want. And we're real loose with the saying that God loves everyone. Do we? John 7 and 24. Stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. Anybody ever read that before? Stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. If somebody walks into High Point Church and we look at them and go, <clears throat> shame on you. Shame on you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth. Whosoever believeth. Titus 2 and 11, we read this earlier. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. John 1 and 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. 1 John 2 and 8. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The truth is seen in Him and you. Is the truth seen in us? Are the things of God really seen in us? About a week ago, Jeffrey and I went to a baseball game, Devil Rays, Boston Red Sox game, and Ruthie had gotten us tickets. <clears throat> Publix has four seats that they have at Tropicana Field, and I was hoping that we would have good seats. Nothing I hate, well, there's some things I hate worse. One of the things I hate the most is to go to a sporting event and have a really bad seat. It just is horrible. I'd rather stay home and watch it on TV. So as we're going there, I'm wondering, I hope we have good seats. And Jeffrey and I are talking about it. And so we go in, and we're on this first level, which is a good thing. And we walk up, and then there's all these steps that go down. And we look, and we're on, well, this is good. We're down the first baseline. We're somewhere behind the dugout. 
on the first baseline. Devil raised dugout. And so I asked the, the person there at the top, where, where exactly is this? No, you're in row whatever. And so we keep looking on the end of the seats to find the row where we are. And we're going down, 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 down. And the further down you go, the closer you're getting to the field. And we get down there, and I see our row, and I go, all right. And not only was it a good row, I liked to sit on the end, and guess what? My seat was right on the end, on the aisle. We were eight rows up from the dugout, right halfway through the dugout, and you could see everything so perfectly. The back of the seat said Publix on them. And it was so cool. You could look around at all the people up in the third level that you almost had to have binoculars to even see their face. And you think, I'm glad I'm not you. I bet you wish you could be where I am. I'm very fortunate. But when the game was over, and the Devil Rays whipped the Red Sox. Everybody left Tropicana Field. And when you got outside, you couldn't tell who sat where. Everybody out there was exactly on the same level. We have to be careful that we don't count our salvation by the quality of the seat we have. This is an individual walk. Your salvation is based on the relationship with you and God. It's not as a group, contrary to what a lot of people will lead you to believe. What's on the sign really doesn't have a lot to do with it. But what does matter is when this game of life is over and we stand before God, we are not judged by the quality of the seat we sat in, but by what was in our heart. Knowing that, do we really feel like we have the ability and the right to judge others while we're here on this earth? And that's the way that it should be. And it goes so much further than just racial, religion. <clears throat> it, it goes to a point of even within certain groups that have the same name on the sign, that there's prejudice among that. And folks, I'm not saying that, that anything and everything flies. That's not my point. But what I'm saying is, we are not called to exclude people from the presence of God. We are not called to exclude people from the gift of salvation. I believe that if we want to see growth in a church, we have to start being inclusive of people that maybe don't look, smell, dress, act, exactly like us.
See, anybody can come to God as they are. Our problem is we don't really want them to come to church as they are. That's exactly right. There is right and wrong. Absolutely. And, and that's why I clarified that. That's a good point. There is right and wrong. I'm not saying that we come to a point where we accept everything as being okay. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need as a church group and as a congregation be accepting if somebody walks through the door... We can't expect them to already be clean when they walk in the door because it's like fishing. You can't clean a fish before you catch it. It'd be nice. It's just not possible. We want everybody to come to High Point Church. And then when they come, let the Spirit work in their life and let the Spirit do the, the changing and the cleaning because that's really all that's going to matter. If we change them because we give them a rule book and say, here, follow this rule book, they've only done it because of me. But when they change because the Spirit has changed them, they've changed on the inside and it's come out. There's way too many people sitting in churches this morning that have changed on the outside but the inside's still the same. We just need to be careful of how we look at everybody else. The plan of salvation has not changed. Not at all. Right and wrong has not changed. But God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whosoever believes in Him should be saved. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother David. Shall we stand together? Paul said, Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest.